Isaiah chapter 9. And what we are doing uh, in this series is we're trying to get our hearts prepared uh, for Christmas. Uh, Like I said already, it is like we are knee deep in the season. It is uh, full-blown Christmas spirit uh, mode for everyone. And there's this reality that we have to kind of grapple with. I think when it comes kind of to the Christmas season, but even more than just the Christmas season, uh, really just us by nature are people who live in this world of expectation and anticipation. Uh, what I mean by that is this, is we're, we're kind of always looking for the next thing. We're always looking for what is around the corner. And what I don't mean by that is, hey, I'm having a bad day. I hope tomorrow is a better day. It's even when the day is a good day. When today is a good day, we are looking forward to something that's even better than the day we're in now. Meaning this is that our hearts are never really content. We're never settled. We're never like completely satisfied. Uh, It could be something small like a day off. Who loves a good day off? Come on now, everybody loves a good Saturday, right? Uh, for me, my day, my, my real day off is Monday. I love Mondays. Mondays are awesome days. My, my kids are all in school. I love them, but they go to school for the day. Uh, the house is quiet. I get to drink coffee. Mondays are a good day for coffee. Really, every day is a good day for coffee, but I drink a, a lot of coffee on Monday. I take a nap. Oh, naps for the glory of God. Anyone? Can I get an amen for that? That's some good preaching right there. Uh, I read. I do nothing. Uh, As much as I can, I do nothing. Love days off. Long for days off. Look forward to days off. Expect days off. Anticipate days off. Could be something small like a day off, but it could also be something bigger than that, right? Like retirement, vacation, uh, summer, like whatever it is, the next year, two years, three years, when I get around this corner and we live in this world of expectation and anticipation, but what ends up happening is often when we get there, we're still not content and satisfied. We get to where we think we're supposed to be going and it's never quite enough. And so then we'll just end up looking for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. We get to where we think we need to arrive, and then we arrive and we realize we haven't really gotten to where we need to get. And what it ends up doing is it leaves us in this place of disappointment, frustration, depending on, depending on the significance of what it is that we're anticipating or expecting or longing for. It could even leave us feeling completely disheveled completely without hope, completely broken, as my my good friend Adam likes to call it, an adult temper tantrum. You ever have an adult temper tantrum? Just me? Something rises up within you that says, I was hoping this was going to be something more than it actually is. The reality is that all of our frustration is birthed out of unmet expectations. We have an anticipation for something. We, we have a longing for something. It doesn't measure up to the hype. It doesn't deliver on what it says it's going to give us. And it leaves us frustrated. It leaves us broken. It leaves us hurt. It leaves us disheveled. It leaves us feeling like there must be something more. Our kids do this to us. Our spouses do this to us. Our bank accounts do this to us. Our jobs do this to us. Our hearts long. They long. And never is that more pronounced, I would argue, than in this season, in the Christmas season. Because this season is all about anticipation and expectation. It's all about looking ahead to this this perfect moment 
where everything comes together, where the turkey comes out of the oven and everybody is there. Your kids have all returned home. Everybody's wearing matching sweaters. The fireplace is the perfect temperature. And we're sitting around the table enjoying dinner, laughing. Ha, 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 This is amazing. But the reality is we are setting ourselves up for disappointment. Because that's not what Christmas is like. Your kids aren't going to wake up on Christmas morning, open the present you got them, and be overwhelmed with gratitude for your radical generosity. They're going to be done opening their presents, and they're going to say, is that it? It's, It's actually... It's actually a season that is marked by disappointment. By unmet expectations, by anticipations that go unfulfilled. I mean, most of us have brokenness in our families. Most of us have parents who are divorced or kids who have gone wayward or maybe don't even live in the country or aren't home. We have people that are going to come into our homes that maybe we have to tolerate for an evening or an afternoon. And yet what is pitched to us all the time, Mark Sayers, he's a pastor from Australia, a bit of a cultural anthropologist. He calls this hyper-reality, where everything that is pitched to us, every commercial, every Hallmark movie, you know, even this morning as I'm in Starbucks and I'm, I'm working on my sermon this morning, I'm looking at the, the, the menu and there's, they have their Christmas drinks out and it says, what is it? It says, uh, wonder and joy. A latte is going to give you wonder and joy. But we're, we're bombarded with this idea that this is what the season is supposed to look like, but yet it doesn't. It doesn't. If anything, it's the opposite because we've been set up to think it's going to be something amazing and really it's pretty normal, boring, plain and often marred with hurt. Vanquished hope. Where your kids go home and you, you feel like crying because you want so much better for them. Or you wish, for some of you, this is going to be the first Christmas that you're going to celebrate without a spouse, without a parent. In our family, this is the first Christmas we're going to celebrate with with one of our parents who has a cancer diagnosis. That's the human experience. And what we're trying to do in this series is in a very real way, pitch a counter-narrative to you than the one that you are bombarded with every song, every day, every commercial, every movie that says, your heart doesn't need a turkey dinner and the quintessential Christmas moment to satisfy its deepest longing. It needs Jesus. It needs Jesus. And our hope is that our hearts would get anchored to that reality. So with that in mind, let's go to Isaiah 9. Merry Christmas, by the way, hey? 
happy joy, ho, ho, Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer. And let me just say before we go to Isaiah 9, it's not like cards on the table. I'm not the anti-Christmas guy, okay? I married Kelly, and part of the vows were you get her, you get the Christmas. So we're like tree up early, lights up early, Christmas in November, the whole thing. I'm just trying to set your heart up to be prepared to bear the weight of unmet expectations. And I know that the only thing that can do that is Jesus. And so what we want to do is, is pitch a counter-narrative, not for the sake of pitching a counter-narrative, but because the narrative that is pitched for us in the, the Bible through the gospel is that narrative. We're, we're just telling you about Jesus. We're telling you the, the Christmas story is the way God unfolds it for us through the pages of the scriptures. It's not all... Uh, rainbows and puppy dog tails and cotton candy. It's a lot of darkness. It's a lot of brokenness. It's a lot of pain, but there's a lot of hope and the hope isn't in this place. It isn't in this moment. It isn't in this dinner. It isn't in this Christmas. It's in Jesus. So go to Isaiah 9 and, and let's look at Isaiah 9 together. Isaiah 9 chapter 2. Here's what the prophet Isaiah says to the people of God. Here's what God says to his own people through the prophet Isaiah 800 years prior to the birth of Jesus. Here's what he says. He says, the people walking in darkness. The people walking in darkness. He goes on, he says, have seen a great light. But look at what he says in the second half of the verse. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. As I've already said, there's, there needs to be an acknowledgement by us that this season, not just this season, but the, the human existence period, but specifically this season, is one that is marked by darkness. There was darkness in the people of God's reality as it was lived out 800 years ago. They were under political pressure. There was all kinds of wars and, and instability in their, in their kind of reality. And so they were faced with all kinds of darkness. They're... they're there was an imminent threat to them that was leading to their potential end as a nation and as the people of God. And God gave them one decree, and that was to trust me, be faithful to me, remain faithful to me. And the people of God chose not to do that. They chose to look elsewhere. They looked to other nations. They looked to other means of, of being saved. And God's saying, I'm the only one who can save you. And they chose to reject the goodness and grace of God. And the result of that in their lives was darkness. This is the case for us. When we choose to reject the grace of God, it results in darkness. Many people ask, why is the world dark? Where is God? I thought, if God is good, how can there be so much evil and suffering in the world? And the reality for us that we have to wrestle with on some level is that the, the darkness in the world isn't because of God, it's because we've rejected God. We've chosen to go away from God. And so when culture pitches you this narrative at the Christmas season that says humanity can in some way save itself, you can make your life better if your life would just look like the Hallmark Christmas movie, ultimately what it's doing is it's pointing you back to yourself to say you are the one who can save yourself. But what the Christian story tells us is that we can't save ourselves. We're walking in darkness to look to ourselves to try and save ourselves is the epitome of irony. It's like asking the blind to lead the blind. It's not going to work. I mean, I am not versed in this conversation whatsoever, and I'm not about to make a political statement, so don't email me on this. But I was on social media this morning, which is a great place to get all of your news if you are wondering where to get your news. Go to Facebook, right? The, the stay-at-home mom sharing the articles, they always got the best stuff. So I'm on social media this morning, and I'm reading 
Uh, the BBC out of the UK is talking about this global summit that was had by world leaders where they're talking about climate change, and they came out with basically no response. They decided on nothing. So we've been pitched this narrative that the world is coming to an end, and I don't care where you stand on the science. That's not the point of this conversation. I just want to make a bigger point here about how dumb it is to trust yourself for your own salvation. The world is going to end the next 20 years. The planet's going to evaporate. We've got to move right now. The smartest people that we all put into power got together, and they couldn't decide on what to do because nobody wanted to you know, give up their economic status or their upper hand or their trade policies or whatever it is. Why? Because of Isaiah chapter 2, chapter 9, sorry, verse 2. They're walking in darkness. Again, let's just assume that it's all true. The, the world is going to end. The smartest people in the room got together and they could. No. The idea that humanity needs to look to itself to save itself is foolishness. You cannot save yourself. I cannot save Myself, I cannot put on a good enough Christmas to solve the darkness problem that exists inside of my heart. But yet, this is the narrative that we are pitched. But look at what it says in verse 1, chapter 9, verse 1. There's a beautiful word. I talked about this word a couple Sundays ago, and I said you should underline it. It's the word nevertheless. Underline that word in your Bible. If, you're, if you have your phone out, highlight it. This is a beautiful word because what this word is illustrating for us is the beautiful reality that regardless of the darkness, regardless of the darkness that we're walking in, whether it's the fruit of our own rejection of God, whether it's the fruit of someone else's rejection of God, whether it's the fruit of just circumstances that have happened in your life, here's the beautiful truth of the Christmas story, right? Spoiler alert, here we go. God is not going to leave you in the darkness, the, sto the story doesn't end here. God doesn't say, well, you rejected my goodness and grace. You rejected me, and so you're on your own. He says, nevertheless. In other words, despite the fact. Despite the fact that you don't obey me. Despite the fact that you don't follow me. Despite the fact that you don't serve me. Despite the fact that you've reject me, rejected me. I'm not going to leave you there. And then look at what it says in verse 2. We've already read the verse. The people walking in darkness, what? Have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. So while the culture of uh, the Christmas story of culture would say, look to yourself to solve your own problem, the prophet Isaiah would say, eh, wrong answer. God and God alone can save us. You notice the prophet Isaiah doesn't say, try really, really hard and the light will dawn in the midst of the darkness. What, what happens here that produces the light? Nothing. It's a sheer act of the grace of God. Now, and I want you just to kind of feel this, wrestle with this in your mind and your heart for a second. That God births the light in the midst of the darkness. He, he just makes it happen. You're walking in darkness, you're, you're living in darkness, and God's light, it just appears. In, in other words, it's a function of his grace. He's the one who moved. He's the one who made it happen. It's not us. 
Well, we don't look to ourselves for light. We don't look to ourselves for contentment. We don't look to ourselves for satisfaction. We don't look to ourselves to to, uh, cure the angst that is the human heart that longs with anticipation and expectation. We look to God. He's the one who makes the light come into the darkness. Now, what is the light? Go down a few verses. God pushes his light into the darkness. What is the light? Look at verse 6 and verse 7. He says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called. And there's these four titles that we've been working our way through. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Verse 7, Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. All the language that Isaiah uses here in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 9, keep in mind this was written 800 years prior to the birth of Jesus. This is all messianic language. As we talked about at the beginning of this series, anytime there's an Old Testament prophecy, there's always what we call double fulfillment. So was there an immediate rescue for the people of God 800 years ago in the midst of the trial and suffering and the darkness that they were living in? Absolutely, it comes. But there's a second fulfillment. And if you look at the language that Isaiah uses to describe who this savior to the people is going to be, there's a pointing forward. This is what we call uh, Messiah or messianic language, meaning rescuer language. Meaning what God is talking about through Isaiah to the people of God, what Isaiah is speaking of here in these two verses is not just an immediate salvation for the immediate problems that they find themselves in, but he's talking about an ultimate salvation from the ultimate problem of sin and death, the ultimate darkness that humanity lives in light of. That there will come one day one who will save his people. God will send one who will save his people, rescue them from their sins. In fact, that's the exact language that the angel uses in Matthew chapter 1 when he appears to Joseph to let him know of what's going to happen to his soon-to-be wife, Mary. She will become pregnant with a baby, and that baby will rescue God's people from their sins. In John chapter 1, John, the disciple of Jesus, unpacks for us the Christmas story. And in there, he uses, he, he doesn't tell the story through fact or data. He, he kind of uses an, an image or an, uh, an illustration to tell the story. And he uses the, the illustration of light and darkness. And he says, Jesus, the light will come into the darkness. He's the ultimate cure for the, he's the ultimate light who is the ultimate cure for the ultimate darkness. And so the Christmas story is saying to you, to me, to us, we can't look to humanity. We can't look to ourselves to solve our own problems. We have to look to Jesus. I want you to hear how different this is than every other message you're ever going to hear. Every other worldview, philosophy, ideology, whether it's New Age spirituality, whether it's whether it's just the SBNR, spiritual but not religious gospel of West Coast Canada, whether it's the gospel of Christmas, it's all about you. It's all about you saving yourself. It's all about you making Christmas perfect. And, and what is that? What's the fruit of that in your life? Well, it does one of two things. Either you pull it off, which is really just an illusion, right? If, if you have a quintessential awesome Christmas, it's just because you're really good at faking it. 
And I know that because, like, when I look at my family, I'm like, we're perfect. And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm here. <laughs> so we know your Christmas dinner isn't going to be perfect because you're going to be there. But it's conceivable to come away from this season and feel like you did it. I did it. I'm amazing. I did it. Look how amazing I am. What is that? It's pride. It's pride. It's all about you. And, and the other ditch on that road, right? For every mile of road, there's two miles of ditches. The other ditch on that road, and this is probably the one most of us will fall in if we're decently self-aware, like even moderately self-aware, it's going to be despair. My family sucks. My kids are screwed up. I'm screwed up. I hate people. I'm a failure. What, what are both of those realities? It's darkness. It's darkness. It's a rejection of the goodness and grace of God. And it's walking in darkness. And the Christian story says, I got good news. It's not actually about you. It's about Jesus. It's not actually about what you can do, what you didn't do, what you think you did, that you didn't actually do, what you didn't do, that you wish you had done. It's about God, his goodness, his grace. That's why he sent Jesus. That's why Jesus came, to save you and rescue you from the darkness. And despite the fact that you don't even know about him, you aren't even aware of him, you aren't even aware that you are walking in darkness right now in this moment, he still presses through and brings his light. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And then there's these four titles that we've been walking through. You can see them in verse 6. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Last week, Andrew did a great job unpacking the first two, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. This morning, uh, with the time I have left, I want to unpack this idea. What does it mean that Jesus is our Everlasting Father, what does that tell us about who God is? We've been using this image of a window, that these titles are like a window into the heart of God, but they're also a window into our own hearts. They tell us something about the person work of Jesus, about the very nature and essence of who God is, but then they also tell us something about who we are. As we look through that window, it reflects back on us. It shows us what's going on in our own hearts, and we have to wrestle with both of those realities. Now, one of the things I do when I... I come to a sermon or a text that I'm going to be preaching on. The first thing I always do is I go, what questions do I have of this? And I start writing down questions. Uh, one of the, what I think is an obvious question as I unpack this phrase, everlasting father, is simply this. I thought this text was about Jesus. If this text is about Jesus, then why am I calling Jesus father? I thought God the father was God the father and God the son was Jesus and God the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. I don't have time this morning to unpack the doctrine of the Trinity, but you would be right if that was a question you are asking. And the simple answer, the simple solution to this question is, is simply that this phrase isn't giving Jesus the title of Father. This isn't Isaiah or God through Isaiah saying that, that the Son, the Savior, is actually going to be the first person of the Trinity, God the Father. 
What he's doing here is actually describing for us or giving us a picture of the characteristics of the Savior who is God the Son as he relates to us, the people of God. And there's this beautiful reality, and it is, it, it is theological in nature, and it does require us to do a little bit of thinking this morning that we, that we get to wrestle with as, it come, as we come to the Christmas season. And that is this, that Jesus is the full manifestation of who God is. In other words, in the incarnation, when Jesus comes uh, as a baby, lives as a human, as a man, as he dies, as he goes to the cross, as he's resurrected, as he ascends, and as he will return again, all of that reality is a picture for us, an image for us of what God is like. Uh, The way I describe this to my kids at the dinner table this week as we were talking about the incarnation is the, the word incarnation literally comes from the Latin word uh, carne, which means meat. Like if there's any meat eaters in the room, right? You've had chili con carne. What is that? That's chili with meat. I don't even know why we need to distinguish between chili with meat and chili without meat. I think chili without meat is like salad with tomato sauce on it. But, but chili con carne is chili with meat, so the incarnation is God with meat on, with skin on, with flesh. God, God made flesh. And so when we're looking at Jesus, we're actually looking at God with flesh on. So there's all kinds of scriptures that point to the significance of this. Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 17, for example, and I think some of these will fly by on the screen, but the Apostle Paul writes, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is being revealed. In other words, we can see the righteousness of God revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So again, in other words, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Colossians chapter 1 verse 19, the Apostle Paul writes, For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him, talking about Jesus. And then Colossians 2.9, for in Christ the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. So so what's my point? My my point is this, and it's actually a big deal. It's, It's a really big deal. You can know what God is like. It's good. If you look at Jesus, you can know what God is like. So many people want to know what God is like. There's so many people who are hungry and thirsty and searching for God. They're they're reaching out to him. This is why we love, this is why we long for transcendence and and experiences of awe. Because we get this sense that we are small and there's something bigger than us out there. According to the scriptures, according to the teaching of the Bible, the means by which we can know the God, the transcendent God of the universe is through Jesus. It's beautiful. This is why, I'll just total side note here, but this is why we, we can say, this is why we do say and why we can say at West Village, we exist to make Jesus known. I mean, Jesus said some really, really specific, really narrow things. If, if you want to know God, you must know me. He said, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. John chapter 14, verse 6, no one comes to the Father but through me. And so we can say with full confidence that the mission of the church, by the way, you are the church, the mission of your life is to make Jesus known. Isn't it to make God the Father known? Isn't it to make the Holy Spirit known? 
According to the scriptures, it's to make Jesus known. God the Father sends God the Son. The Holy Spirit is the one who testifies to our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Jesus is the one that we pray to and and worship. And by knowing Jesus, we can actually know God. We can know the fullness of who God is as we know Jesus. And so when we talk about the incarnation, when we talk about Christmas, what we're talking about is the God of the universe who humbles himself to make himself known for us. We can actually... He humbles himself and comes as a baby. And and some of this gets lost on us, but I just want you to think about this for a second. The God who created the cosmos... He didn't just come as a baby, right? I don't know my biology very well. And I don't know the mechanics of how this works. The way that the New Testament describes it for us is that the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and she became pregnant with Jesus. But but he experienced nine full months of gestation. The The smallness the humility of that experience. It's unbelievable. You know, in first century Palestine, it was not uncommon for infants to be lost through the childbirthing process. And yet God humbled himself and put him in that, put himself in that position. He did indeed come as a baby, completely dependent on on a mother and on a father. As he grows up, he he has to learn how to walk and talk. He has to be fed. He has to be cared for and nurtured. But then as he becomes older, he experiences loss. He experiences rejection. We see instances in the New Testament where Jesus weeps over his own friends dying. He He experiences the rejection of family. He experiences betrayal. He he experiences anguish. He experiences moments where he has to to muster up courage to face the things that God has placed in front of him. He experiences temptation. He experiences homelessness. He experiences hunger. He experiences poverty. He experiences all of these things. Why? Well, lots of reasons, but let me just give us two that I think are maybe relevant and helpful for this moment. One, so that when we pray to him, we know that he hears and understands our prayers. As you come into Christmas and as you shed, you shed the ridiculousness that is our cultural narrative and you get real and you experience the pain and the hurt and the hardship and the brokenness that is the reality of the lived human experience, you are not alone. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, we have a great high priest who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Why? Because he suffered just as we have suffered. In other words, when you pray to God, he understands. Your prayers don't hit the ceiling. They get right to his heart. Second reason is this, so that you could be delivered from the darkness. 
God's desire is not that you would stay in the darkness, but that he, his light would break through into the darkness and he would rescue and redeem you. The life of Jesus ultimately ends in the cross where Jesus pays for our sin. He, he takes on darkness, as Andrew talked about last week. In fact, in I believe it's Luke's gospel, he, he describes in great detail the moment in which Jesus goes to the cross, breathes his last breath, that it actually became dark. It was noon, it was the middle of the day, and it became dark. And again, this image of darkness casts a shadow over that moment on the cross. And we see this image where the light becomes dark. Why? So that our darkness could become light. It's a beautiful picture for us of the grace of Jesus. As one author writes, Daryl Johnson, he says this, talking about this title, Everlasting Father, he says this title literally means Father of Eternity or Father of all futures. Jesus is the possessor of eternity. Feel the paradox of this. Feel the mystery of it. The one who lived before time now enters time. The one who causes children to be born is now born as a child. The one who begets is begotten. He is the source and goal of all of life. Jesus, Father of eternity. What a picture of the humility, the grace, the tenderness of God. our Father forever. Now, in this room, this group, this many people, that word, I could, I, that might not be a good word. The word Father brings up all kinds of emotion and pain and hardship and unmet expectations and wants and desires that have, have longings that are still left on the table, right? We, we've all experienced hurt from our fathers. Some have, exper have experienced abuse. Some have experienced neglect. Some, again, for some, this is our first Christmas without our fathers. Some of us are fathers and we feel like we haven't done a very good job. We're, we're riddled with regret, and some guy gets up on a stage in a movie theater and starts talking to you about how God's your father and you just want to tell him to shut up because it's not helpful. If anything, it disengages you from wanting to relate to God as father at all. You, you, the word father is more like a prison for you. And my hope for us, my prayer for us, is not that the word father would be one that causes pain and hardship as it pertains and relates to who God is, but rather that it would be one where, whereby we could actually free God of our unmet expectations. Rather than it being a prison that we hold Jesus hostage in because of the pain and suffering that we've experienced or the disappointment and hurt that we've lived through, Instead, it would become like a home that we could live in where, where we could experience the tenderness of God as he desires for us to know him. 
If you have your Bibles, turn to the right, because there's many instances where Jesus tells stories about the nature and character of God. And here's where I want to end this morning, is by giving us a picture of what the Father heart of God looks like through the lens of the life of Jesus. Luke chapter 15, we get this great picture where Jesus tells uh, a number of parables, another, a number of stories revealing to us what God is like. And in Luke chapter 15, there's a parable, one that is not new to any of us if we've been in church for any length of time, known as the parable of the lost son or the parable of the prodigal son. But, but really, this parable isn't about the son. It's, it's actually about the father and how the father responds and relates to the son. And so what I want you to hear as we walk through this is, is not just the life of the son, but the response and the life of the father, the heart of the father as Jesus reveals it to us. So Luke chapter 15, picking up in verse 11, it says this, Jesus continued, he'd been telling a number of parables. He says, there was a man who had two sons. The younger son said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. Uh, so he divided his property between his two sons. Uh, so functionally, the younger son comes to the father and says, Father, uh, I'd like my inheritance early. I wish you were dead. Would have been a scandal. Would have been shocking. Would have been completely uncalled for. Obviously. And I want you to notice the great lengths to which the father had to go to, to give his inheritance to his younger son. Uh, Jesus says that he divided up his property. That means he had to sell his property. He, he had to give up his possessions. It wasn't just cashing in some, some t, you know, tax-free savings accounts or some RSPs. This was actually selling his property and possessions and functionally starting his life over again. There was a great cost to the father to give his son what he was asking, but yet he did. He did. Jesus goes on. He says this in verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together with I got together all he had, and he set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and uh, he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out as a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything to eat. So he goes out, he wastes everything the father gives him. His life is like a giant, you know, spring break meets hip hop video. Spends everything he has, and now he has nothing. He's broken. He's humbled. It's like Isaiah 9, right? He's in darkness. The darkness has come over him. He's rejected the goodness and grace of his father, and the darkness has come over him. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Uh, make me like one of your hired servants. So he, he reflects on the situation. He realizes things were a lot better when I was at my dad's house. I'm going to go back to my dad's place. I'm going to apologize, but there's no way my dad's actually going to take me back as a son. Maybe there's an off chance that he'll take me back as one of his hired servants. So the son expects to go back, and he expects to be rejected. 
Now, maybe for some of you, this, this response that the son is expecting of the father makes perfect sense because you're putting yourself in your shoes and you're saying, yeah, if I did that to my dad, there is no way my dad would take me back. I mean, he might take me back so that he could uh, take me behind the woodshed, but I would never even go home. The things he would say, the things he would do, not a chance. I mean, I've met many people who were in similar circumstances to the son in this story, and at the age of 14, 15, 16, had made a mistake, had done the wrong thing, and they lived homeless. They found another way to live besides being in their own home and with their own family because they could not go home to their fathers. But more than how we relate to our earthly fathers, what about how we relate to God as father? The idea that we could go back into God's house after what we have done for some of us, it's, it's unthinkable. Uh, maybe, maybe you're you know, new to faith, new to church, new to this whole experience, and you're thinking to yourself that God is somewhere out there, and he, I, I, I can't pray to him, I can't come to him, I can't go to him because of what I've done. This is the beautiful reality of what Jesus is trying to share with us. This is the beautiful reality of the Christmas story. This is the beautiful reality of Isaiah chapter 9, right? It's that word, nevertheless. Nevertheless, that we've rejected the grace of God. Nevertheless, that we walk away from God. Nevertheless, that we've looked to other things to satisfy us other than God. God breaks in. He comes as a baby. He sends away. He offers us grace and sin hope. And look at the response of the Father. This is what Jesus is going to say. This is really good news for us this morning, church. Verse 20. So he got up and went to his father. The son walks to the father. And you can just imagine what he's thinking. This is not going to go well. And look at what we see. The second half of verse 20. But while he was still a long way off. In other words, what? The father was waiting he was looking every day. Will my son come home? Is today the day that my son is going to come home? I want my son to come home. Is that him? No, that's not him. Is that him? No, that's not him. He's looking every day, walking to the end of his driveway, looking down the road, hoping that today is the day that his son comes home. Why? So he can beat him? So he can heap insults and abuse on him? Let's see. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion. Not anger, not retribution, not more darkness, but compassion. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. I want you to think about this with me for just a second. This father was shamed by his son. This father would have known everything that had happened in the life of his son. He would have known about all his rebellion. He would have known about all his ex, ex, uh, ex, uh, all the bad stuff that he had done. Escapades. Let's go with that. That works. That's an E word. He would have heard. Everybody would have been telling the father, this is what your son's been up to. This is what he's been doing. The father knew everything. It wasn't like he was naive. It wasn't like, well, he probably took my money and invested it, made some really wise decisions, bought some properties, and now he's coming home just to tell me how great it was. He knew. 
And what does he do? He pursues. He goes after. He loves. He runs towards. He knows the deepest, darkest, most intimate realities of his son's heart. And he still loves him and forgives him. For some of us, the idea of being fully known, it's absolutely terrifying. We hide who we are because we don't want to be known. We, don't, we hide from our spouses, from our kids. There's stuff in here that we think if we put it out on the table, we'd be rejected. And yet God, the one who knit you together in your mother's womb, the one who, like the Apostle John says in the book of Revelation, his eyes are like blazing fire. He pierces into our hearts. He knows our thoughts. He knows our motives. He knows why we do what we do. He knows why you're here this morning. He knows what you did last night. He knows everything. And yet he runs towards you. It's beautiful. Tim Keller has this great quote where he says, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we could ever dare believe. Yet at the very same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hoped. We long to be known, but we are terrified of being known because we don't want to be rejected. And Jesus offers us being fully known and fully loved and fully accepted at the same time. Listen to me, friends. Listen to me. This is what you're longing for. Jesus is our everlasting Father who's saying, Come home. I'm not going to reject you. I know what you've done, I know where you've been, and I will not reject you. I will run towards you with compassion. I will throw my arms around you. I will hug you and kiss you. And as the story ends, I will throw a party because my son, my daughter, my child was lost and they have been found. Do you know what Christmas is? It's God coming to the end of the driveway to see if you're coming home. It's him coming in as a baby going, are they going to come home? doing everything I can to tell him to come home. I'm calling out, come home. If you've seen my kid, tell him to come home. And I'm not going to make him a slave. I'm not going to make him a servant. I'm going to call him son or daughter. And with compassion, I will throw my arms around them. I'll end with this. Jesus Storybook Bible we sell this book. Uh, it's a kid's Bible out in the Connect desk in the lobby. You can buy one after you should, after I read this quote. It has this line that threads through the entire story 
talking about the covenantal love that God has for his people. And Luke chapter 15 is just one giant cosmic, uh, or sorry, the Bible rather, the story of God is just one giant cosmic prodigal son story. That's all it is. It's God's people running away from him and him pursuing them. And here's what it says about the love of God. It says that God loves with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Christmas, Jesus as our everlasting father, it's a picture that you can be fully known by your father, fully loved, and listen, endlessly loved, perfectly loved. Let's not settle for anything less than that. Let's come home to our Heavenly Father. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your grace and mercy. I thank you for this picture of Father. It is a hard picture for me. It's a hard picture for all of us because the darkness is real. The sin is real. The brokenness is real. The hurt is real. The hardship is real. But so are you. So is your love, so is your covenant with us, so is your pursuit of us, so is your heart for us. It is your deepest desire that we would come home to you. So as we go through the Christmas season and we just get so caught up in the fray, I mean, honestly, most of us have probably worried more about what to get our kids for Christmas than we have about how to teach them about Jesus Our hearts are so disordered and so disoriented and we're a mess. We're Isaiah 9 too. We're walking in darkness. We need the light to dawn. Would you dawn on us, Jesus? Would we see you? Would we see your light? And would we follow it back home? Pray in Jesus' name. And all God's children said,